This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Dr. Patricia McGraw, a Baha'i who has provided individual and group psychotherapy to victims of trauma and abuse for more than 25 years. She is a forensic expert in post-traumatic stress disorder and interpersonal violence and its effects. She has written two books, It's Not Your Fault, How Healing Relationships Change Your Brain and Can Help You Overcome a Painful Past, and her second book is called Seeking the Wisdom of the Heart, The Journey Doesn't End. I started the interview by asking Pat where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I was born in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, where I lived until I was seven. And I had a uh, brother and sister who were twins, and I was a uh, a twin, but my brother died at birth. And I had I had this heart condition that kept me in bed for a year when I was mm. five. Then I moved to uh, ended up in. Um, Glen Rock, Pennsylvania, which is very rural, very pretty area in southern York County, Pennsylvania, to when I left home for college. I so was 18. I was in Glen Rock, which is midway between York, Pennsylvania, and Hanover, kind of in the middle of nowhere, really. Very mm-hmm. much in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, which actually I think I kind of liked, except, you know, it was hard to have a lot of friends. Once you got to be a teenager, it was kind of hard on you being so far out. But I enjoyed nature. I still like nature. I like being alone and having time to think. And what would you say your major interests were when you were in like high school? I was. Uh, I liked to write. Even then, I was a uh, editor of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I, I had an interest in spiritual matters, much more so than most teenagers did. Well, everyone at that age is interested in boys. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After high school, what did you do? I got a scholarship to Rosemont College in Philadelphia, because really because of my English ability. got a scholarship and got honors at entrance and all this jazz, which was a big deal for me coming from, again, the middle of nowhere. So English was your was strong suit? English, yeah, exactly. If you put it in words, I always say, don't draw me a map. <laughs> <laughs> I went there, and I, I continued to wonder if I was going to go into journalism or psychology. I was always interested in you know spiritual issues then, too. This is a Catholic college where I and I double majored in religion and psychology. But at the point I graduated, I said, "Drop your religion major because no one will ever hire a psychologist who has an interest in spiritual stuff." So that's what I did. I guess I've kind of always had a philosophical bent. I guess. Mm-hmm. And what was your religious upbringing? I grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. and uh, Rosemont was a Catholic college. Mm-hmm. Um, I majored in, of course, religion, so I studied the world's religions and. I didn't really know what I wanted to be, so I was kind of nothing for for a while. And is that pretty much the way 
You were raised as well? No, I was raised very Catholic. Mm-hmm. I actually played the organ. That's another interest of mine. I have a, a grand piano that I play very poorly and privately, <laughs> <laughs> but I do enjoy it. And uh, my mother had me playing the organ at church when I was like in sixth, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny stories because I didn't really know how to play the organ. Yeah, so then I, you know, did a lot of searching and uh, after a lot of searching, went back to the Catholic Church and about that time, I ran across the Baha'is and the Baha'i faith. And, uh, was this in college? This really went for that. No, that was after I got married and moved to uh, rural Kentucky. Well, first to Lexington, Kentucky, where I got my master's degree and my uh, doctorate. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to rural Kentucky, Danville, Kentucky, where that's where I stumbled on the Baha'is. Tell me how you ran into the Baha'i faith. I was working at a community mental health center there, and there were a few Baha'is who were there who just became friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had no interest in their religion. I couldn't even say it. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't really want to know. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Having already sort of done that in a way, you know, studied everything and decided what the heck. When you studied everything, Pat, did you were you like drawn to anything particular, or, or what was your sort of your conclusion? was that everything had something good to offer, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And that all, though, had become mixed into people's ideas. I suppose you could say corrupted somewhat or whatever, taken off, taken away from the real pure spiritual ideas that began the religion. Mm-hmm. Kind of mixed in people's ideas. Certainly the Catholic Church I felt that same way about. Mm-hmm. But since I grew up as a Catholic and since I felt it I was familiar with it, and I had been before I found about the Baha'i faith. I thought, well, you know, since all of the religions are suffering from the same ill, I suppose I might as well stick with my traditions. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. once I found the Baha'i faith, I was just shocked to find their principles were so in keeping with what I had actually concluded were my own personal principles after all this searching and <laughs> reading. You know, the equality of men and women, for instance, was the first thing that impressed me because uh, that meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm woman. Just the emphasis on the unity of religion and the unity of all peoples in the world and, you know, so many of the um, the ideas and principles. And I thought, I think something that really helped me was, was that since the Baha'i faith actually, in a sense, is an umbrella or a, or a uh, like a, almost a watershed, I guess you'd say, of all the world's religions, I could authentically relate to all my clients from all the different religions with a sense of belongingness and understanding. You know, not not just a tolerance or just a feel free to be wrong kind of (laughs) kind of approach, but really a a feeling of oneness with all the peoples of the world and all the different religious backgrounds. So I really like that a lot. Inclusiveness, I guess. Mm -hmm. And what kind of work were you doing at that time? Uh, By then, I was a clinical psychologist, which I basically was uh, all the rest of my career until the last five years is when I've gotten into forensic psychology. Still see clients. I still, you know, okay. have a very small caseload. Now, when you started, did you have your own business? I've always pretty. I've either worked in community mental health or I've had my own business. I've had three of my own businesses. Mm-hmm. And you started with community mental health. I started in community mental health in in Danville, Kentucky, and also in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? Um, you're seeing clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're working for a, a community mental health agency, of course, that, that works on a sliding scale and is mm-hmm. able to see everyone, whether they can, you know, afford to pay or not, mm-hmm. which is very nice. It was there, really, that I became acquainted, first acquainted with the whole problem of trauma, of childhood abuse and sexual abuse and 
neglect and abandonment and all the things that that really are very harmful to children and end up impacting really their whole life. And um, at that time, this is in the late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't that much interest in trauma. There was hardly any literature on it, really. This was before multiple personality was even recognized as a problem. Cornelia Wilbur was at the University of Kentucky. It was one of the early writers about multiple personality disorder. So I was really quickly felt over my head with the severity of the problems my caseload had. Terrible poverty, lots of abuse, multi-generational problems. I mean, it was it was challenging right from the beginning, that's for sure. And how'd you handle that? I, it's a good thing I was still praying. <laughs> I think I actually always have re- have relied a lot, you know, on saying your prayers and doing your best. But mm-hmm. at the same time, naturally, I tried to get as much training as I could. And I got uh, involved with the people who were studying dissociation, especially uh, a man named Richard Cluft, who was uh, um, doing some of the groundbreaking research in that area. I tried to go to the training programs that I could and, you know, just began a lifelong interest in trying to understand how to, what trauma is and, and how to treat it. And what were the circumstances that caused you to migrate from community mental health to your own private practice? I had two babies. (laughs) And uh, you can have a more flexible schedule. It's really more personal reasons Mm -hmm. uh, than anything else in Kentucky. Also, I got the opportunity to be the first person to ever have a private psychology practice in that whole part of the country. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it was uh, very, very rural there. We were in a, um, Danville was a, town of about 13,000, but it, it was uh, the regional hospital was there. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, maybe 30, 40 doctors in that town and and no private psychologist to refer to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that created an opportunity, but people were surprised that I did so well since no one had ever done it before. You found out about the Baha'i faith during which, which phase when you were in the... There term? in Danville. Uh-huh. When I was in Danville, I mean, it was kind of a... I mean, well, for me, it's an interesting story. I, uh, my friend had gone to Haifa, Israel, which is the site of the Universal House of Justice. It's the world center of the Baha'i faith. And she had traveled there and just taken pictures. And that, as people do. And she said, do you want to see my travel pictures? And I'm like, well, sure. So she came over and she started showing me these pictures. And I really don't know how to explain it to you. It's going to sound kind of hard to believe, but it's it's as if some part of me recognized these things. I just was like, I was really split. Like it was a moment of really feeling the difference, as I talk about it later, between my head and my heart. Mm. My heart just resonated to these pictures. It was like, that's it, that's it, that's what you've been looking for all this time. <laughs> really? And my head was going, don't be ridiculous, this is stupid, what are you, losing your mind, you know? Mm. Have you ever felt that split like sure, that? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, it was like that was one of the more dramatic moments of, of feeling that split for me. And I even got up angrily and went into the kitchen and started slamming things around, saying, I don't want to be part of this religion. I can't even say it. This was, <laughs> and your friend was still there, or this was after your friend left? Yeah, they were still there. Oh, they really? were still there. And they came out and they were like, What's the matter with you? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh... <laughs> and of course, they smiled knowingly, which only made me more upset. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So what happened after that? Well, then my intellect, of course, succumbed. Thank goodness. Over the years, eventually my intellect succumbs to the wisdom, I guess, of my heart, at least mm-hmm. enough to say, all right, I'll at least read about it. Mm-hmm. 
and um, the more I read, the more I I really read looking for something wrong with it. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. come on, still reading. <laughs> <laughs> and how many years is that? That then? was about twenty five years yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, actually, I'm you know very grateful because yeah. it's it's been a very uh, wonderful thing in my life. Now, how did your family react to this? Well. My children, who were small then at that time, they were, uh, you know, six and eight or something like that. They were immediately drawn to to it. It's interesting. Uh, very drawn to the folks in that in that locality who were Baha'is and just loved to be with them. And I think that had a lot to do with it for me too. That comfort they had. But you know, not everyone in the family was, you know could quite understand it but you know i i think this thing that with me and religion it was just like well you know she <laughs> there she goes again but as people ex- examined it more you know they did have more respect for it my parents eventually went and investigated it and their comment was that it was a religion for people who are intelligent they said <laughs> <laughs> was that a good thing <laughs> i guess <laughs> Since they weren't opposed, yeah. I let it go with that. <laughs> so they were fairly open to it then. Yeah. Now, what moved you to? Uh, well, let me. What was the first book you wrote? Uh, it's called "It's Not Your Fault: How Healing Relationships Change Your Brain and Can Help You Overcome a Painful Path." And when did you write that? I wrote that about, I think, in two thousand one or so. Mm-hmm. I think it, didn't it come out in 2004? See, I have, a, I, have a, I have a press release that says 2004. <laughs> you can see, yes, yeah, 2004, right? Okay. Well, the the reason I wrote that at all is I had started, I had come into a conference. Um, I met for many years with a group of Baha'is who were struggling with issues, and they named the group the Baha'i Network on AIDS, Sexuality, Addictions, and Abuse. And anyway, this group would meet. It's an open group, you know, a different groups of people would meet at conference centers and they would have um, these very remarkable sharing circles based on a Native American model where you gather in a circle and you, one person speaks and everyone else listens and just amazingly transformative experience. And as part of this, they usually had a speaker and I was always there just as a sort of, uh, sort of safety net type of person. I was there in case somebody needed a counselor for some reason, but I didn't usually have an official role. Until this one day, uh, their speaker didn't show up, and they said, Pat, do you know anything? <laughs> what <laughs> like, a question. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, you know, I stood up and I drew the brain, and I started, you know, talking about trauma and how it affects your, you know, mind, body, spirit type thing and all of this. And and people became very agitated about it. They They were they were kind of outraged. Certain people in the audience were outraged that no one had ever explained this to them before. It seemed to make so much sense. And why didn't they already know this? And it was the funniest experience of my life. And uh, they had me keep going to these conferences and giving the same lecture, like three and four times a year for five and six years, I think I did that. And of course, eventually people started asking me to write it down. And eventually I started thinking, I guess I better, you know, (laughs) getting tired of saying this. Mm. Not tired, but you know, I guess right. I started to believe myself there must be something here that's mm-hmm. useful and helpful to people. And people used to say they wanted to hear it again and again because there was something about it that you know, each time they would think about it they would they would get something more or different out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's how the book really emerged and um 
I made a commitment to myself that I was going to go ahead and write it, and I wrote an introduction, and I went to one of these support meetings, and uh, I dreaded, you know, the whole process of looking for a publisher and all of that part of it. So I announced to the group that I was writing this book, and I read the introduction out loud, and as it turned out, someone in the audience um, was able to connect me up with the publishing trust, and I never did have to look for a publisher. You're referring to the Baha'i Publishing? The Baha'i Publishing Trust, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's the basic premise of the book? The basic premise is that experience changes your brain, shall we say, and especially relationships have a huge impact on your own neurobiology. And it really challenges uh, the whole, all the assumptions that are inherent in materialism, that what's real is what you can see and what you can feel and what you can measure. Uh, and, And it kind of flips materialism upside down. It sort of says, actually, the material is created from non-material type experiences, both good and bad. So that if you have a close relationship with your primary caregiver, your mother, your father, those early days of your life, that will actually begin to, I call it, grow your brain, pattern your brain, and create these relationship templates or patterns that stay with you for really for all of your life. While it's true early experience plays a big role, it's also true that that dynamic of experience altering your perception and your way of processing and your whole nervous system organization, that process never stops. So the good news is if you've had negative experiences early in life, you can have positive and corrective experiences as your life goes on that will allow you to move out of that. What does that look like? Well, I talk about in the book a, a long-term relationship I had with a, a client called Kim in the book. And she starts her story, and she tells her own stories from her journals. And they are her, they are her journals. She's a real person. And she talks about beginning work with me in a state of absolute fear and terror. She had tried to kill herself many times. And she comes to me so damaged that for three years, she's unable to speak. Now, she's not, you know, uh, physically unable to speak, but she's so emotionally terrified and has been so hurt by so many people for so long that just being in the presence of someone who's just paying attention to her just freezes her up. And I talk about this freezing experience in the book. That's where, so in the book, we go back and forth between what Kim is talking about her experience was and what the science of that might be. What is this freezing thing, for instance? And if you think about it, if you're terrified, you know, people know if, if a mountain lion walks in the room, you can fight, you know, shoot the mountain lion, or you can flee, run away from the mountain lion. But the third thing you can do that people don't know much about is freeze. And this freezing or this emotional numbing kind of experience is what becomes the first line of defense with people who've had lots and lots of childhood trauma. Because obviously, if you're being abused as a child, you can't run away and you can't fight. So you learn to do this freezing or dissociating. And that's where Kim was. I mean, she she spent most of her time in a fearful 
dissociated, you know, pretty dysfunctional state. So and at this time, I've just talked with her a few days ago, and she is um, a very successful salesperson for a Fortune Fortune 100 company. So she really, really made tremendous strides and healed. And so she tells her story, and then I try to explain, like I say, what might be going on from a neurobiological and you know scientific point of view. But in a very, it's very easy to read. That I would try very hard to make it accessible to mm-hmm. just a general reader. Right. Generally, what was the technique to take her from not communicating to making progress? Well, in general, if um, someone's been harmed by being terrified, you want to be sure that you create an atmosphere of safety, emotional safety. And she talks about that at length in the book. She says for three years she would come in and she would bring her journal or something and she would sit there and I would sit there and she says she doesn't really remember what I said during those three years. She only remembers the way I said it. So the tone of voice, you know, the body language, just that sense of, you know, I care and you're safe. And then gradually over time, she was able to quite, you know, literally fall out and begin to actually talk. So I have really explored this whole idea of a context of emotional safety versus a context of emotional fear more and more and more over the years. And if you read a book called The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton, he talks about the fact that the body only has sort of two systems, and one it uses when it's in a state of fear, and it's a system that the body is trying to survive. And it's not a good mode to try to learn or grow or develop. That's not what you're trying to do then. Versus when you feel emotionally safe um, and calm, and then you can be creative, and you can bond with other people, and you can, you know, realize your human potential. But to try to do that in a state of fear, it's not possible. I don't think we really know that. Mm. I don't think we're real clear about that in the culture. Yeah. Have you written another book? I have, called Seeking the Wisdom of the Heart, mm-hmm. The Journey Doesn't End. And it really grew out of the first book. When I would travel with that book, people asked me three questions. They would say, well, Pat, I think this is marvelous that you worked with this woman for 15 years and she felt better, but I don't have you and I don't have 15 years, so how am I going to get better some other way? And then they would ask me what sustained me. You know, Kim really, you know, she did more than sit there and not say anything. You know, she tried to harm herself a few times. She would sometimes, you know, once she thought out, she had all kinds of different negative emotional states she moved through. And, you know, so what sustained me? And then um, I guess the question is, is it possible to heal, to attune? You know, attunement is a word that came out of the first book. As, as this emotional bond or connection. That was the word that uh, I can talk about in a little more in a minute. Is it possible to attune to the healing forces of the universe without another person? Can you sort of uh, pray or meditate or, or find some way to connect up with this positive energy yourself without another person? So these are the questions I try to explore in the second book. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you found? Well, I, I began to, 
to try to think about an answer to those questions. And, mm-hmm. of course, it took me way back to my beginnings. It's interesting that you asked me about my beginnings. Mm-hmm. I did certainly think that for myself, I had been very much healed of the difficulties in my own life and um, sustained throughout my whole life uh, through prayer and meditation and not, you know, I haven't had a lifelong therapist or anything like that, you know. So I thought that was possible, but I didn't really know how to ever talk about that in a way that didn't sound like the church lady, you know, or something. I don't know. How do you talk about that? So then I saw that movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? Oh, yeah. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. And it got me thinking even more about how we all can create our own reality um, according to, uh, especially around the idea of what we're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. The, The funny part of the story about the second book is actually I wrote it twice. Oh, really? The first time I wrote it, I had seen the movie and I did, I read 100 books or more. And I tried to put together all of these ideas about creating your own reality around the issue of belief and intention, what your, you know, what your beliefs are, what you're choosing, um, attention, what you're paying attention to, and your action. Well, while those ideas actually have some merit and do end up playing a role in the second book, I sent the first book off to the publishing trust and about six months later it came back with really the, the edits I kind of added up to them saying in a nice way, in a very polite way, yuck. <laughs> One of the comments was, I don't know what this book is about. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what to do at that point. I, I really, you know, I guess I I had failed, really. I had tried to, to do something that I just had failed at doing. And I had to agree. When I read it myself, after having put it down a while, I didn't know what it was about either. <laughs> so, so I actually quit. I had to quit. And I I wrote and I said, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I tried to do this and it just failed. And, and I felt terrible because I really care very much for the people at the Publishing Trust and they were really counting on and looking forward to this book. So, you know, that was not an easy... Thing, and I'm talking about it all happy now because it had a happy ending. I ended up not having all this stuff now stuffed in my head, a hundred books in a year of thinking and studying about all this. So I started writing in a journal, especially reflecting on a book that's a Baha'i book, a very small little book called The Seven Valleys. Explain what The Seven Valleys is. Yeah, The Seven Valleys is a um, really kind of a long, long letter in a way that Baha'u'llah wrote someone who inquired, Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah, oh yes, Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And he, this this small little book has been referred to as it's his ultimate mystic text. It's, it's very small, very succinct, but just very um, rich in its uh, spiritual significance. I started... After this terrible experience with the failed book project, I started reading this book and I started really thinking so much about the heart. I was trying to understand how it is, you know, that, for instance, when I was looking into the faith, some part of me said, yes, this is a good thing. And some other part of me said, what, are you crazy? Like, what was that about? So there's this quote that I started reading, and the splendor of that light is in the heart. Yet it is hidden under the veilings of sense 
and the conditions of this earth, even as a candle within a lantern of iron, and only when the lantern is removed does the light of the candle shine out. I started thinking about that, and then I started, I stumbled upon this group called Heart Masks. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. One word, Heart Masks. Well, they're a group in um, uh, out west that has studied the actual physical heart, and they have found that that there is a sense in which the heart itself has a way of knowing, the actual physical heart, even. Mm-hmm. And they say it has a brain and an electromagnetic system, and certainly it's connected to your emotions, very intimately connected to your emotions, through the hormone system and um, all many other neurochemical pathways. And I started thinking about that, and I started just kind of also thinking very deeply about the idea of levels of consciousness. That if you're in one state of consciousness and you have an experience, you know, let's say you're in a really good mood one day, and you've all had this idea, I think, of being in a close relationship with someone, and on a certain day, they just seem like the most dandy person in the whole world. And the next day, when you're in a foul mood, you wonder why in the world you ever came across this <laughs> you know, the the person doesn't change or the right. situation maybe doesn't change, but your mood changes and when your mood changes your whole experience changes in your perceptions and everything about what you go through at that time changes. So I was trying to figure out what the heck is going on with all this. And as I'm reading the seven valleys, I'm becoming aware that Baha'u'llah is really talking about seven stages or seven um, levels of consciousness, with the lowest level of consciousness being pretty much where we all begin at the material plane, and that as your spiritual development progresses and you see and experience your life really more from your heart than from your ego or your your selfish side, you begin to live life on a completely different plane and have completely different experiences. And so remember, my first book says experience changes your brain. Mm -hmm. So you see how these two things begin then to intertwine, where where according to heart math, if you can become conscious of your emotional state and conscious of what you're paying attention to, conscious of what you're choosing, you can actually begin, they say, to be the architects of your own neurobiology. And what do you, what do they mean by neurobiology? Well, they mean if I'm telling you that as a child your experiences create these nervous system templates or these patterns in your own mind and brain that that then serve as patterns through which you perceive and experience life throughout your life. And if we know that you can have successive experiences through life that continue to change and alter and rearrange these templates then certainly spiritual experiences that you choose and intend and and act on on purpose for the purpose of raising your consciousness are going to be equally powerful, if not more powerful, in terms of of being able to change who you are. So there's certain things we can do to change our neurobiology. Mm-hmm. And what are those things? Well, your neurobiology is changed by every experience you have. Um, your brain is a self-organizing system. In other words, the structure in it is created through its functioning. So as you go through life, your brain keeps rearranging and reorganizing itself. It's not like a computer at all. It's a computer, of course, is not alive. 
and uh, your brain and you, not really any separation between these things, you are always in a state of constant um, change. That's the one thing we can be sure about. So if you're always changing and you're always having experiences, the question becomes what kind of experiences do you want to have and how is it you want to change? In what direction? The Baha'is acknowledge that there is basically two directions you can go in. One is towards a more spiritualized uh, self or outlook or way of living, and the other is um, a more material or um, less spiritual. I call it spiritual gravity. (laughs) If you stop trying to be spiritual, you sort of fall back to the material plane. So this choice between the spiritual versus the the material is one that we all can make every moment of every day, really. What can we do to sort of help us go towards spirituality and and avoid Mm -hmm. the gravity of material? Well, I think at least three things uh, you can keep in mind. Um, There's another very interesting group called mindandlife.org. And this group assembled itself around the early conferences that were held between scientists and the Dalai Lama. I'm sure you understand because he's the head of uh, the Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And he's been interested for many years in science and claims that Buddhism really is more of a science than a religion, a science of mind. And uh, this group spoke with him at at great length here in in Washington, D.C. over the past year. And after many days of meeting, everyone came to the conclusion that to really begin to alter ourselves in, in directions that are positive, to raise our consciousness, to begin to live from this more positive state of mind, um, that you need three things. Uh, you need to, first of all, decide to do that <laughs> and have an intention, a, a conscious choice to, to live a spiritual life. I mean, no one can force anyone to live in some way they don't want to live. So you'd have to make a choice about that and to practice virtue. And secondly, you'd have to have some kind of spiritual practice. Um, They talked a lot about mindfulness, meditation, Baha'i's faith, uh, enjoins us to pray at least twice a day, and there's some prayers that we can choose from to say every day. So some kind of spiritual practice. And the third is some kind of group of people to help you stay on track on the first two things. So from the Baha'i perspective, you know, naturally we have uh, the Baha'i community that meets and, you know, we we help each other try to do the practice virtue and stay on our spiritual pathway, do our spiritual practice. But all the religions of the world have that, really. You know, if you really think about it. Yeah. Have you written another book? I haven't written another book. But I'm actually working on a third book. Okay. And the third one has to do with applying these principles to groups and organizations. Um, I've become a senior associate for a company called Idea Connection Systems. And this is a company that specializes in helping um, organizations innovate, be creative. Um, and the interesting thing is... Um, that the reason the company was interested in my work is that they were finding that trauma uh, interferes 
with the creative process. Um, just to give you a few examples, in some organizations, there have been these terrible layoffs where, you know, on one particular day, maybe, suddenly a, a huge part of the workforce is asked to leave uh, with no warning. And it's certainly terrible for the people who leave, but it's very interesting what it does to the people who are remain. Um, they become traumatized by this event, and uh, the whole culture of that organization can shift from one of feeling safe and, and having the ability to be creative and innovative to feeling very fearful. And this shift that I talked about earlier, where really your, your focus is more on survival, on saving your job, on not having that happen to you. And then that really creates long-term problems for a company when, when the culture makes that kind of a shift. So uh, that work is still very much in progress, mm-hmm. very much in the incubation stage. Yeah. Now, how is it that you got interested in psychology in the first place? The psychologist to me was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I really don't like to be bored. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I've been really, really happy with my career choice all my life because people mm-hmm. are never-endingly interesting. I always say brains are like snowflakes. People are like snowflakes. Everyone's different. Mm. Oh, yeah, you're never true. bored. Yeah. So what else you got going into the future for you? Well, I'm, I think the thing I'm most, ex- of course, I'm still doing the forensic psychology, which is very interesting, and um, I'll be keeping going with that. And mm-hmm. I think the thing I'm really the most excited about right now, though, is this, um, is the work with idea connection systems and trying to work with the organization and groups and and see how these ideas play out there. I've recently given talks at the World Bank, at the Inter-American Development Bank, um, and they, they're they going to be having me come back um, and do some more talking because they, they're seeing applications for this information in their organization. Mm-hmm. So I'm still trying to understand that. You know, I remember how I said my whole work began with giving a talk and having being mystified that people kept wanting to hear it again and again. Right. Now I'm kind of re-experiencing that on the organizational level. Mm-hmm. I can I can understand how these ideas apply to individuals. I'm still mm-hmm. uh, developing an understanding of how they apply to groups and organizations. So now, are you coming up with frontier. right? Are you coming up with tools and techniques for for addressing these traumatic mm-hmm. issues? And if so, what 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 are you coming up with? In my first book, I recommend that people do two things, of course, that they pay attention to their relationships. Obviously, I'm always arguing that the relationships we have with other people have a power and an importance that maybe we underestimate. That even the smallest kind of relationship and maybe the most trivial type of event can have a powerfully negative or powerfully positive impact on a person's life. And I usually tell this story to audiences. When I was five and in bed, I told you for a year I had to stay in bed. (laughs) It was because I had a congenital problem, but Mm. nobody knew it. They just thought I had some some illness or something that I couldn't identify, and they were waiting for this illness to pass, which, of course, it never did. So as I'm laying in bed, all of a sudden, out of the blue, a young woman knocks on the door, and to this day, I don't know who she was. She brought a box in. The box was covered with paper to make it look like the ocean, and on top of the box were these little toy fishies, 
and there was a string attached to each fish. Inside the box, there was a toy attached to the fish, but the box was covered. so You could only see the fish. And each day, for 30 days, I got to pull a fish out of the box and pull up a little toy that was attached to that fish. Well, boy, did that change my attitude after, you know, having absolutely nothing to do. <laughs> Couldn't even read by at that age. Well, when my attitude shifted and I started acting more happy and perky, I heard my mother tell the doctor on my, you know, weekly visit to the doctor that I, quote, seemed to be getting better. Well, you know, I took that one to heart. I'm like, if I seem to be getting better, you're going to see somebody who really is seeming to be getting better. So every time she came in, I, like, smiled and acted happy. And <laughs> I remember it vividly because she decided I was getting better and she brought me down into the kitchen. No, and it's it's not a long distance from the kitchen to just see mom deciding that I guess she's okay, she's acting okay. So I really think the girl with the fish box probably saved my life. You know, so what, what would have happened if I just laid there looking more and more depressed every day? By the time you had gotten healed, did they know what was wrong with you even after no, you were see healed? That, no, no one ever. In those days, in the fifties, you know, <laughs> this was fifty nineteen fifty six. 1955, actually, 1955, um, they could hear that I had a very tor- terrible heart murmur, but they didn't know why, and they didn't have any technology to find out why. In 1990, they did have the technology to not only find out, but to fix it. They just took out my bad valve and put in an artificial valve. How I had an artificial, I had a bad valve from birth. Right, so you lived with a bad valve from from five years until not long Still ago. Until 40. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to understand, you were you were bedridden with this congenital condition, but somehow... Well, I was bedridden because my heart sounded like a washing machine, so they figured I was, quote, sick. Right. But it never stopped sounding that way. They thought I had rheumatic fever, but it didn't pass, and they don't think now I did have rheumatic fever. So, I just had a bicuspid valve, they call it. So your condition really never changed. Mm-hmm. They just figured, okay, enough, just get out of bed. Yeah, she's acting better. I guess she's all right. Yeah. <laughs> that's how <laughs> very, it went. That's very interesting. Yeah. So you were never any better than when you no. first started lying in mm-hmm. bed. I was never sick, and I never got better. <laughs> wow. I, it was just the perception of the people you know, of my mother, really, and what she was telling the doctor. So you were relating the story because of relationships and the importance of relationships and yeah. healing, I guess. But my question was directed toward the tools and techniques in an organizational Oh, yes. Well, you know, that's what everyone's situation. asking for. Yeah. And that is what we are working on. But it would be premature for me to talk about those. Because they're in a work, it's a work in progress. I'm afraid there's still a work in progress, right? About as much as we know so far is, you know, we want to create a safe context. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Bob uh, Rosenfeld is the uh, head of the the company, and he's written a book called Making the Invisible Visible, where he talks about the principles of innovation. So that has a lot of positive um, information in there about the principles, um, and really they are spiritual principles that underlie innovation. But the issue of what does trauma do to that, and then how do we recover when people have been traumatized, that's the work he and I are 
well, we talk many times a week about it. <laughs> you know, we're trying to work on a paper and really put our ideas together so that we can talk about it soon. Sorry, <laughs> that's the next interview. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. You know what? That's what everybody wants. Yeah. Um, on your uh, second book, Seeking the Wisdom of the Heart, the journey doesn't end. One way to look at my second book is that it's about spiritual development, which of course doesn't end, mm-hmm. and that it's about levels of consciousness and um naturally there's no end to your ability to continue to refine and develop your your state of consciousness higher and higher and um my understanding is that spiritual development doesn't end because it even as this life ends you move into other worlds of god the baha'i faith calls them uh, the next life or lives that allow you to continue on with your spiritual development so but i think you know even if you are not so spiritually minded, maybe that you want to look at it that way. Um, part of what I'm I'm talking about is something that's very popular in in all of the literature today: positive psychology, and everyone's looking at the notion of whether or not it's possible to be happy on the inside, even when circumstances on the outside are anything but positive. And of course, I'm arguing in in this book that. You can, because if you tune in and attune to this to this spiritual or this uh, reservoir of potential and um, you know universal the goodness you know the universal positive forces that hold the whole universe together, that if you tune into that, you're going to feel a spiritual happiness and contentment, even perhaps in the midst of very difficult and challenging and negative external circumstances. And the psychology literature bears that out. They talk about resilience, psychological resilience. And um, there's no doubt that people that have strong beliefs and strong systems of meaning have amazing resilience uh, to trauma and to all life difficulties. Yeah, you know, one of the more influential books of all of my all of my education was a book called Man's Search for Meaning by, I believe that's the name, Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a classic book. I've uh, been there a long time. And he talks about his experiences in a concentration camp. Mm. And uh, I got to hear him in person, actually, when I was in college. And um, um, he argues the same thing, that in that ultimately dreadful external circumstance, which could, what could be worse? with a concentration camp, that those who found an inner meaning and an inner an inner core, a reason to live, were the ones who who did live. Uh, and he was he was one of them. Yeah. And that's he wrote that amazingly powerful book. It's still still um a book I see people carrying around and reading. Very, very uh, important book I think. Yeah, I agree. Well Pat, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Patricia McGraw, a psychotherapist and the author of two books, It's Not Your Fault, How Healing Relationships Change Your Brain and Can Help You Overcome a Painful Past, and her second book is called Seeking the Wisdom of the Heart, The Journey Doesn't End. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. 
For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. She looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire, alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? How else will we burn or do we On my doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder What on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now 
Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Sent me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really loves me Someone who loves me Sent me a strangely wrapped it harder to fly free so fly little one fly you're the answer to the prayers of every saint that longed to die no earthly things on your clean tiny wings made only of virtue and the sky so fly little one fly Oh, oh. 
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.